Tonight Show, and I am talking today to... Please introduce yourself. Hello, uh, uh, my name is Saul Ravencraft. I am speaking from Austin, Texas. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am what you might call a paranormalist. Uh, I have a few different threads that reach out. A lot of people think of me as a paranormal entertainer. Uh, I am regularly featured at the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, amongst the shrunken heads and mummies and such, uh, where I use that opportunity to connect with people, explore the powers of the mind, uh, sometimes spirit connection. Uh, we uh, had a very powerful connection with, uh, with someone yesterday. Uh, we had a group where we did a pendulum experiment and she made a connection with someone who, as it turned out, uh, had killed himself two years ago that day. Uh, so that was an unexpected uh, but powerful moment that seemed to be very good for her. Outside of the museum, I uh, broaden things quite a bit. There are a lot of restrictions in that environment, and I'm very interested in the areas of uh, spirit communication and uh, the uh, communication between minds. Uh, I'm also a magical practitioner, and while that doesn't go into my performance world as much, uh, I do uh, spend time with people who are trying to explore and expand in those areas. Uh, I'm a little bit of a gateway mystic there. Uh, so part of what I do is, is in the entertainment world and is primarily intended for fun. And part of what I do is more in the spiritual realm where people who are seriously trying to uh, explore and deepen their connection. And I do my best to save them some of the trial and error that I've undergone. Have you, uh, what kind of experiences have you had yourself? Well, when you talk about ghostly experiences, which I think is, is where a lot of people tend to go there, my, uh, my experience has been, uh, as far as just random experience, I think one of the more fun ones that I had was at the Driscoll Hotel here in Austin. It's one of the most haunted places in America. Uh, there's at least 33 different stories uh, of different people who have encountered spirits there. Uh, the hotel was built in 1885, and uh, some of the experiences have happened with very famous people. In fact, uh, uh, there's a, a musician, Jeanette Napolitano, uh, uh, who has a band called Concrete Blonde, and there's a song that they do called Ghost of a Texas Ladies Man, which was actually written based on her experience there in the hotel. But the hotel was built by Colonel Jesse Driscoll, uh, who was a cattle baron. And one of the legends of the hotel is that people will smell his cigar smoke. And this is actually not just a, uh, an interesting experience, but it's, it's a demonstrative experience of what these encounters are really like. So I was in, uh, in the gentleman's uh, upstairs next to the bar. And it's a very elegant hotel. So uh, they have uh, little privacy rooms. 
there uh, within the the restroom. Uh, so it's, uh, it's you know like a, a little room that you go into. And uh, I was uh, getting ready to wash my hands, and I had a very distinctive smell of cigar smoke. And it was uh, it was I know that it was cigar smoke because I will smoke a cigar occasionally. And I had a sudden craving for a cigar. And there was a place on 6th Street that hand-rolled cigars. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, my gosh, that cigar smells good. You know what? I think I'm going to have a cigar. I'm going to go buy Baba Lou's, and I'm going to buy one of those cigars. Uh, and I am going to walk around 6th Street and smoke my cigar. And that is going to be so pleasant. I got hungry for a cigar. Right, because of the smell. Yeah. And then after a few moments, as I'm going through that fantasy in my head, I realize, well, wait a minute. Austin has a no smoking policy. There, there, there shouldn't be any cigar smoking going on in here. And and nobody pops into the restroom for a quick cigar. Something is wrong here. This doesn't make any sense. My brain kicked in, and then the smell went away. And. I thought about that and realized that that connected perfectly with the legend of Colonel Driscoll's cigar smoke, and I had smelled it. Now, when I've talked to skeptical friends about this sort of thing, they go, well, are you sure it was a cigar? Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was something else that you smelled. And have you ever gone by a Chinese restaurant or an Indian restaurant? Yeah, but that's strong aroma. Right. You, you get a craving for Indian food. Yeah. You, you don't walk by an Indian restaurant and get a craving for fish and chips. Yeah. Now, that, that, that triggers a very specific reaction. And I got hungry for a cigar. That was not a coincidence. So I am absolutely convinced that what I was smelling was cigar smoke. And, and I know... I know that it was cigar smoke because of the way that my mind and my body reacted to it instinctively. Uh, and the only explanation I can think of for cigar smoke to be in that restroom at that time was Colonel Driscoll. Well, I reckon you're right, because it's like you say, when you go past a coffee shop, you get a strong sort of cough, and it's your cup of coffee, even though you don't drink coffee. Right, right. And, and nothing else will trigger that. You know, you don't go by a gas station and have a craving for a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, you know, these, these things are very specifically triggered. And so that, that was a special blessing to me because not only did I have the experience that I share the experience that many have had of Colonel Driscoll's cigar smoke, but I have... I have, uh, I had a very specific reaction to it that to me was evidential. Uh, for for people that, that talk about this sort of thing, they, they call it anecdotal. Uh, they didn't experience, so so it didn't happen. Uh, but that response that I had was was proof to me that I had gotten something more than just casual uh, idea or, or you know, mistaken perception or something like that. Uh, and so that's not only been good for me, but it's been good for me to help explain to people who are trying to understand those sorts of experiences. Um, I've uh, conducted a number of uh, seances 
many of what I, many of the seances that I conduct are intended to be entertainment. And actually, in, in the heyday of seance, most of the seances that people experienced were intended as a form of entertainment, or at least it was for many of the people that attended. Uh, because in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot to do. Uh, you could sit in the in the parlor and, and listen to Aunt Agnes recite her uh, her poem and uh, uh, Uncle Alfred uh, do his recitation again and tell some jokes. Uh, listen to uh, cousin Cecily uh, do her aria that she's been working on. Uh, or you could go do something interesting, like try to connect with the dead. Uh, this was their Xbox. Uh, this was their uh, this was their their cable television. Uh, the opportunity to to experience something unusual. And I think a lot of people went into it not necessarily trying to make any solid connection, but just to see what it was like, see what the experience was like. And that's why seances and such were conducted in theaters. Uh, where people would come and buy a ticket to a big audience uh, as they experienced this, because it was just a, a weird, extraordinary sort of thing. And so a lot of what I do is, is in those conditions. And I, I treat it like a show. Uh, I, I try to create an, an atmosphere and, and some theater around what is happening so that people can enjoy that experience. But then every once in a while, I do have someone that connects with me directly that wants to make it more... Uh, specific personal connection and uh, that's not something that I really advertise so much but I do I do try to work with people though those circumstances are much more subdued uh, and, and much uh, more quiet uh, than what you'll find in a, a theater setting because it's a completely different goal well, I, I, well some time ago I was in a coma Experiences 
say things like, I know what I saw, I know what happened. That there's a personal component to it that cannot be conveyed, or at least cannot be proven. You can convey it, but people who don't relate to it don't really understand what it's like. They can possibly use their imagination, but a lot of the people that are stuck in this debunking mode, uh, they don't really have much in the way of imagination, uh, I don't think. And so there is a class of people who have gone through these things that know that there's something something bigger, something beyond our, our normal understanding, and those who don't. And you are one of the people who has been fortunate enough to have that personal experience that demonstrates to you that it's, it's uh, our, our existence is not just what we're told. Uh, there, is a, there is a more mysterious element there that you have connected with. Has it changed your perception? Oh yes, it's changed my perception completely. I didn't. I was a great believer before that event. But I do think I touched or got touched by something. I do. Sure. Uh, I mean, I don't believe I got mystical powers or anything like that. But I, I do sense things more than I used to. We're certainly more aware, I would imagine. Yeah. Certainly. I, I, like you say, I, I try to be cynical as well. I don't try to be, oh yes, yeah. But I, yeah, but I, I, I would argue the point to King to come if someone said, oh, I don't believe you. I say, well, you wasn't there. I was. <laughs> right, right. And I think that counts. I think that really counts. I, uh, I got involved in a lot of this to prove that it wasn't true. Uh, I had a very uh, skeptical, cynical approach to it. I think a lot of the people that call themselves skeptics aren't really skeptics, they're cynics. They aren't really interested in discovery. They aren't really interested in, in understanding uh, other perspectives. They're, they're very comfortable with their own data set and that's where they're gonna stay. Uh, I think a genuine skeptic is open to possibilities, but looking for something that defines it, that proves it to. Uh, and, and I began to have experiences myself. I, I started playing with divination because I was doing a writing project that was causing me to do a lot of research into magical beliefs. Uh, witchcraft and, and other sorts of things connected with that. And I had to actually dig into uh, the lore and dig into uh, books written by people about the practice of these things, not just the, the lordly guides of what those silly people do. And I kept finding myself as I would read certain kinds of information, I go, hmm, well, that, that sort of makes sense. And then I went, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, you are, uh, you are going down the rabbit hole here. You, uh, uh, you are taking this too seriously. You need to back up and look at this more rationally. And so I did. I uh, decided to play with some of the divination but to do it in a way that I felt was was a serious exploration of it. I started with numerology. And as I began working with the numbers, I kept coming across things that made me go, ooh. And it 
pointed to things that were going on in my world that were frustrating to me, but they were reflected in the numbers. And I found myself actually making changes <laughs> based on what I was seeing to see what would happen. Uh, uh, changing the, the way that uh, different things that I was doing that was reflecting in the numbers. And by golly, they had positive effects when I did those things. And uh, when I started doing readings for other people as an extension of the experiment, uh, and finally got to a point where I sort of let go a little bit of trying to follow the manual, per se, uh, things started to light up and people started to say, you are, you're tapping into something, you're doing something here. And then as I tinkered with things along the, the magical lines, uh, I, I had the same sort of experience. And, and other things changed as that journey occurred. Uh, I had people just out of the blue start talking to me about things. Uh, strangers would tell me ghost stories, paranormal parapies. Uh, and uh, people that I met that, that considered themselves to be practicing pagans uh, would say that, you know, it was obvious that I was, I was a powerful practitioner. I said, what are you talking about? No, of course not. That's silly. Uh, and then I had a couple of friends sit me down and say, you know, you're doing stuff. And you probably ought to start doing it on purpose so that nobody gets hurt. Uh, and they pointed out areas where I seem to be having an unintended influence and uh, I realized I was kind of a wizard uh, and uh, uh, had to accept that on some level and then that turned into embracing it and once I embraced it and really started to center on it a lot of interesting things began to happen uh, a lot of connections began to happen and it's it's transformed my whole world i used to i used to be a corporate guy and uh, uh, all of that has transformed uh some of it uh, under my direction some of it was what i feel the universe just saying okay you're being too stubborn fine we'll fix it and uh and things were changed for me uh, but I, I certainly wouldn't turn back. I wouldn't turn back at all. And I find that a lot of uh, times I, I do encounter people who are sort of on the edge, that feel like there's something they want to do, there's something they want to explore, but they, they don't dare. And it's as though I am the first person that they're allowed to talk to about this stuff because no one else will take it seriously. Um, and sometimes they just kind of satisfy their curiosity, uh, and sometimes they actually do uh, adjust what they're doing and what they're exploring a little bit. And either way is fine. I uh, I enjoy I enjoy both kinds of encounters. Uh, to me, it's it's just it's it's like what Shakespeare said. There are more things. Uh, that are dreamt of, uh, more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. And uh, that's, that to me is the wonder of life. Oh, I didn't, I would, USA, you have a thing similar to ley lines, I presume. Sure, sure. Uh, there, there are people I know that call them ley lines. I can't think of a, another term for them. But yeah, ley lines I think are something that are, are, 
recognized uh, through a number of practices as being uh, being a uh, a resource. And uh, there's a lot of lore that talks about you know, very sacred places that are traditionally very powerful, being places where ley lines meet and cross. Um, I uh, I haven't dealt a lot with ley lines myself, other than sort of understanding the lore. I haven't actually undertook to find the ley lines in Austin, for example. Uh, although that is something that would be fun. I haven't done. I mean, I haven't done a scientific research, obviously. But I have found that every time I look up um, about a UFO or a cryptoid or a paranormal um, sighting or report, most of them, I'm not saying all of them, are on the ley line. Well, I don't imagine that's a coincidence. But you have to 
to also appreciate that World War II essentially started with biplanes. And by the time we were done, we had jets.
bowl on ice, right? Well, I'm trying to be, be sensitive to my audience here. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, soccer, football. Uh, it's just a similar game. Uh, and, and I think what I enjoy about it is, is just all of the clear athletic skill. Uh, those men can skate uh, incredibly well. Uh, and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like figure skating. <laughs> it's just like skating in a war. Uh, and, uh, perspective. 
existed. Never should have happened. Uh, so I think it's really important for us to have access to all culture, all information, all history, so that we can see it for ourselves. And if it is horrible, we'll be horrified. And if it's not horrible, then, then maybe we'll refactor it and we'll understand it better. Well, it's like, well, like books over here, um, Ian Blyton got told off a character because, well, not Ian Blyton, Peter Rabbit, because one of the characters, Peter Rabbit, was considered not eating, so therefore it was considered a munching, being anorexic. What? I don't think they might have thought you got anorexia was back then. Obviously, he was around, but he didn't, they wouldn't know it by his name now. Then. Sure. Well, and, and, you know, certainly uh, there may have been things like that that were, uh, that were undiagnosed conditions that we understand better today. There, there may be some things like that that are, uh, we, we look at this at that time and, and it was perceived this way, but now we understand that this is what was really underneath it. Um, and I think that kind of enlightenment is helpful uh, to, to look at someone who is perceived as a monster and to now see that there was some sort of an imbalance that created that condition that was untreated. It, it grants us a little bit of compassion for what was going on, but it also feeds into what we were talking about before, that sort of attitude that, that our, our ancestors were a little stupid because they, they didn't know what that was. Uh, and, and I think of all of the things uh, that, that we've lost the ability to do. Uh, you know, an example, when Thomas Jefferson graduated from college, his, uh, uh, his graduation was essentially along the lines of what happens with a doctorate today, where you sit down with a panel and they through things with you and decide whether or not you're worthy. Uh, it's not uh, uh, it's not just just you pass the test sort of a thing. Uh, at least that's the way it is in, in some universities. Uh, and during his exam, one of the one of the things that he was required to do was they handed him a document in Greek, and he was uh, he was to read it to them in Latin because that's something that any educated person would be expected to know how to do. Normal. Anyone who is educated should easily be able to translate a Greek document to Latin or vice versa. Oh, yeah, good because good. that's what smart people did. Uh, do you know anyone who can do that today? Not many.
wouldn't know how to do certain things if you asked them how to do it. Because they were like, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we, we have to call a professional for all kinds of things that, uh, if you look back into the older textbooks, was just normal for people to know how to do. Uh, general uh, survival kinds of things. Uh, we're a lot less aware of that than our ancestors were. And uh, it, it makes us a little helpless. But we have smartphones. Well, that's what I'm using now, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got more power than my smartphone than apparently all the computers used to send rockets to the moon. Oh, right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so people have done amazing things, and, and we haven't been back to the moon. No, I mean, someone, told, someone told me, I don't know how true this is, that there's aliens living on the moon, and they told us basically to bugger off. That is certainly a theory that I have heard, uh, and, uh, and I suppose uh, there's a couple of scenarios to that is, is one, we, we obey them, or, or two, we hit the point where we think we uh, uh, we're big enough to, uh, to go anyway, and uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps that happens at some point. The, the concept of, uh, of extraterrestrial or interdimensional, depending on your perspective, in contact with us is fascinating to me. I haven't necessarily made the in-depth study because a lot of my personal work has moved more in the direction of, of the spiritual and, and the magical, if you will. Uh, so you only have so many hours in the day. And also, if it's not your sort of like general like thing you like researching, you're probably not going to look it up as much as someone like me would. Well, and, and it's just, it's just, you know, I'm, it's, it's easier for me to read the other things that the people like you have looked up, uh, while I focus in my area, it's, it's more of an exchange there, but there, there is a lot of interesting lore around, uh, we'll call them extraterrestrials, uh, and, and the idea that they have been connected with us for a long time, and that there is uh, a part of our world, uh, a sort of an echelon of our society that is very connected with them, uh, and, and, and drawing upon their power while the rest of us uh, service the board. Um, and, and more recent events uh, sort of bring that to mind. Have you ever seen a television show? Now, it doesn't happen uh, as much in, in the UK uh, because uh, you have a, a, a general way of deciding that it's time for a television show to end, and then you end it. Things are much more planned <laughs> in general than they are in the United States. Uh, but the United States uh, has points where shows are canceled because of ratings, and uh, sometimes it's done fairly abruptly. And sometimes the show will just stop, and that's it. But every once in a while, the, the 
showrunners will decide, well, you know, we really wanted to kind of wrap this up, so let's go ahead and put a finale on this. But there's, the cancellation came a lot earlier than they expected. There's so many loose ends, so many things are trying to tie together, so many things are trying to knot up to give the ending that, that it just starts getting weird. Uh, the, the writing just starts pulling all this stuff together in these haphazard ways. That, that it does give the, the final episode they were looking for, but it gets there in a very strange, sort of convoluted way. Lost the final was absolute cack. Right, right. And at the end, you know, you're like, well, I invested all this time in this, and wow, that's that's it. Um, okay. <laughs> I was a great fan of Quantum Leap. I love Quantum Leap as well. Yeah. And that ending was sort of like the God option. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't it feel right now in society, with all of this crazy stuff going on, it's almost like someone is trying to wrap up a series or yes. take you to a certain transition uh, and, and and they don't have time, they've run out of time, so they're just pulling things out. Like, like this whole renewed tough guy rivalry between between the United States and Russia. Oh, yes, it's lovely, isn't it? I don't talk to you, but, so I don't talk to you. It seems like such a, such a farce. Because we, right? both, we both know that if it actually came to a war, a proper war, and they both went, right, we're going to fire the, bo the bombs off. This is end of part one of my interview with Sol Ravencroft. Please tune in to part two, which I will be doing next. Thank you. The podcast you just heard was recorded with Anchor. If you want to make your own, download the Android or iOS app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast. That's anchor.fm slash podcast.